This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The GOP debate kicked off Wednesday night as eight worthless presidential hopefuls vied for title of ultimate moron in a party that remains enthralled to Donald Trump. Their fearless leader was, of course, unable to attend, choosing instead to speak to fucker Carlson before heading to jail. Now that list of individuals includes North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSnotnose, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, former Vice President and once almost hung Mike Pence, as well as entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, as well as South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Now the night was left to a group of boring Trump-like sycophants and conspiracy mongers like the entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who legitimately believes that 9-11 was an inside job. Now Mike Pence thinks he should be president simply because he's not Donald Trump and didn't overturn the Constitution. And then again, Ron DeSnotnose, polling in a distant second, continued his absolutely fucking empty culture war attacks. Chris Christie's trying to be the adult in the room while getting the GOP to move past Trump. But the man has little credibility with the Republican base and is handicapped by the fact that he held Trump's towel for him for most of his administration and then only abandoned ship when it was politically expedient. Now, Nikki Haley can't decide if she loves or she hates Donald Trump. Nobody has ever heard of North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. And Tim Scott is almost as fucking boring as Mike Pence and Asa Hutchinson, who stands as good a chance of getting the nomination as I do. And I say that because I'm not even a Republican. So there you have it, my friends. Nothing they said was worthwhile, and none of them will be the next nominee for president of the United States of America. I mean, this is real inspiring stuff. The real party was actually in Atlanta, as one by one the defendants in the Fulton County election interference case have begun turning themselves into authorities. So lawyer John Eastman, who devised a six-step plan for then-Vice President Mike Pence to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College, well, this asshole was among the first defendants to surrender at the jail. Eastman later defiantly claimed that the country had crossed a Rubicon in the Georgia case and declared that he still believed the election was stolen, despite a mountain of evidence to the contrary. So Eastman said in his own statement after surrendering, and I quote, an indictment that should never have been brought and vowed to vigorously defend himself in court. He slammed the charges as an attempt to criminalize the right of individuals to seek advice from legal counsel and said that the indictment targets attorneys for their zealous advocacy on behalf of their clients. So to my absolute fucking delight, one of the first to be brought into the notorious Fulton County Jail was Rudy Colludi fucking drunken Giuliani, where he was fingerprinted and had his mugshot taken, which looked like the picture taken of a man caught, well, <laughs> exposing himself in public. A judge then signed off on a $150,000 bond agreement where Giuliani's lawyers had worked out with the prosecutors. 
So the farting attorney, hair dye enthusiast, and former New York City mayor turned treasonous scumbag, well, this asshole is charged with 13 crimes, including breaking the state's racketeering act, engaging in various criminal conspiracies, and soliciting a public officer in the state to violate their oath. Then Giuliani spoke to reporters following his booking, saying, and I quote, if they can do this to me, they can do this to you. I mean, does that not sound familiar? It's exactly what my book Revenge is about. It's exactly what I've been saying for years. Giuliani doesn't have the right to say it. He actually fucking did it. Now, Trump came to his defense writing in his post, the greatest mayor in the history of New York City was just arrested in Atlanta, Georgia because he fought for election integrity. The election was rigged and stolen. How sad for our country, period, MAGA, exclamation mark, all of this shit in caps. Now Rudy was indignant about the changes as he left the jail telling a crush of reporters that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will go down in American history as having conducted one of the worst attacks on the American Constitution ever when this case is dismissed. I get photographed, isn't that nice? A mugshot for the mayor who probably put the worst criminal of the 20th century in jail. Giuliani complained to reporters when he left his apartment to travel to Atlanta. Now, I have no idea who the fuck he's talking about, but the truth of the matter is, Donald Trump's not in jail, so he certainly didn't put the worst criminal in the 21st century in prison. And Rudy has maintained his innocence, claiming that the only thing he's guilty of was zealously advocating for his client. And again, he quotes, I am being indicted because I'm a lawyer, Giuliani told the reporters after he was booked at the Fulton County Jail. No, you're being indicted for racketeering and for being a fucking lying scumbag who tried to overturn an election. And something I've said to Rudy, actually to his face, karma's a bitch, motherfucker. Rudy, and this is just the beginning. Also turning themselves in, where Sydney released the Kraken Powell, Jenna Ellis, Kenneth Cheesebro, and Ray Smith, former Georgia Republican Party officials, David Schaefer, as well as Kathy Latham, and Scott Hall, a Georgia bail bondsman who helped breach the electronic voting booths in a rural Georgia county. So let's start with defendant Jenna Ellis, who was famously seen sitting next to Rudy Giuliani, looking aghast as the Italian stallion ripped a full 16 fucking gun salute in his trousers, stayed quiet on her surrender today. Instead, she took to Twitter, or X, to bash former President Trump for skipping the GOP debate. She wrote, and I quote, Trump is not the incumbent. I believe he should fully participate in the primary process, including all debates. Show up, answer questions, be a leader. That's the Trump I know from the briefing room. The American people, and especially conservatives this cycle, deserve that. Now, Ellis is a staunch supporter of creepy Governor Ron DeSantis, whose own presidential hopes have collapsed amidst the revelation that people who meet the man find him to be a fucking robotic, pedantic bore of a human being, and most people would rather watch ants die than spend five fucking minutes with Ron DeSantis. 
Meanwhile, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis told a federal court that it should not interfere in any efforts to arrest Mark Meadows should the former White House Chief of Staff fail to turn himself in by Friday's noon deadline. In a court filing made Wednesday, Willis called Meadows' request for a federal court to intervene improper as well as baseless. The hardship facing the defendant is no different than any other criminal defendant charged with a crime, including his co-defendants who have either already surrendered to Fulton County authorities or have agreed to so surrender in a time allotted by the district attorney, Willis's office said. And so Judge Steve Jones declined the emergency request. And I quote, The clear statutory language for removing a criminal prosecution does not support an injunction or temporary stay prohibiting District Attorney Willis's enforcement or execution of the arrest warrant against Meadows, he wrote. Now in another courtroom, Willis pushed back against Meadows' motion to move the case to federal court, saying that the conduct in question was political activity outside of his official duties as former President Donald Trump's White House Chief of Staff. He has not shown how his participation in a RICO enterprise that conspired to overturn an election had any relationship to his official duties much less how his participation in such an agreement was necessary for him to perform as a chief of staff, Willis wrote. Her office then argued that the episodes involving him that were highlighted in last week's grand jury indictment fit a pattern of him and other Trump White House officials ignoring a federal law known as the Hatch Act that prohibits the use of one's federal office to engage in political activity. Meadows' lack of care for the lawful scope of his official duties is a matter of record, the district attorney told the court, and she said Meadows' own court filings in the removal dispute makes no mention of the fact that every single one of the activities giving rise to his indictment constitutes impermissible political activity which a chief of staff may not lawfully perform under color of office. Willis's filing, which was submitted ahead of a Monday hearing in Atlanta before U.S. District Judge Steve Jones, is a preview of how she could fight against a similar effort by Trump, who is also expected to seek that the state court proceedings be moved to federal court. So my friends, stay tuned tomorrow for another indictment watch as I break down for you Donald Trump's arrest. ready for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is the exact opposite of the narcissistic garbage that's surrendered to authorities today. I'm talking about General Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling joins us today to give us a real and a frank assessment of the state of both Russian and Ukrainian forces as war begins to tip in Ukraine's favor. In addition, he is an outspoken critic of former President Trump and the MAGA agenda. Now I want to be clear about this. General Mark Hurtling spent 37 years in the armed forces. And during his time as a U.S. soldier, he served in the armor, cavalry, 
planning operations and training positions. General Hurtling commanded every organization from platoon to field army. And most notably, General Hurtling commanded the U.S. Army's 1st Armored Division in Iraq during the troop surge in 2007 through 2008 and retired as commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe. His knowledge of the complex alliances between European nations and the fragility of the NATO experiment gives him a rare insight into how this war is being fought as well as what the face of true leadership looks like. I mean, this is a great conversation. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so General, look, everybody's talking about Donald Trump and having to go in and to now, you know, get fingerprinted again for the fourth indictment in Fulton County, Georgia. But I have other questions that I want to raise, things that I believe are even more important than, believe it or not, the fourth indictment of the former president of the United States. And I'm talking about the war that's currently going on between Russia and Ukraine. So I want to start with a prognosis for the war in Ukraine, because many people thought that the Ukrainian forces would not last, that Russia was going to come in, walk all over them. But not you. You actually thought different. Do you now foresee a full victory by Ukraine where they actually push Russia from their borders? Or do you think that that's too much to ask? Well, well Michael, what I'd first like to start by saying is you're exactly right, that we are so focused on certain things that are going to happen, like the trials and the indictments of our former president, some of the other craziness that's going on in Congress. And from my personal perspective, the war in Ukraine uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine should remain at the top of the critical priorities list. To get to your question, though, what do I think is going to happen? I believe Ukraine is going to be victorious. Uh, it's going to take a while, a lot longer than many people expected. We've seen a lot of naysayer and doom tellers uh, in the media lately. And in fact, uh, over the last week or so, we've had some so-called intelligence sources leaking things about the conduct of the operation in Ukraine. But, but truthfully, Michael, having seen this kind of conventional action, which the Ukrainian armed forces uh, is attempting to conduct, it's hard. It's especially hard because Russia had a significant amount of time to prepare their defensive positions when they transferred uh, or transitioned rather from the offense to the defense. It's easier for the Russian forces to conduct a defense behind mines and, and trenches and wire and dragon's teeth and all those kind of things that those of us who have executed combat operations know about. Uh, and it's much harder uh, for the Ukrainian forces to conduct offensive operations, especially so uh, when they're doing it with a lot of new equipment that's been thrust on them by you know, a bunch of different NATO allies when you're talking about all kinds of different equipment, when they have a bevy of new recruits, they've got commanders conducting an offensive operation across a large area of of uh, terrain for the first time. So yeah, it's going to take a while. Uh, but really the meatier question is, is Ukraine gonna be victorious? Yes, they are. When, I don't know, I can't predict that. But they are continuing to see advances on the battlefield, which I think will lead to a, a much better conclusion that many people in the West have thought. Yeah, well, look, you called it in an earlier you know, conversation that you and I have had, you know, you called it the way you believe that Ukraine would ultimately persevere. 
my big concern, of course, is you have a whole slew of Republicans that want to cut off all the funding to Ukraine. And I believe that that in and of itself would be a massive, massive problem, especially when we're finally learning. We're hearing very good things coming out of the Ukrainian military, where they claim that their troops had just entered the small, uh, it's a southern village of uh, Rabatin, and it's basically a very positive sign that Zelensky's counteroffensive is moving slowly, inch by inch by inch. But that's what they say wars, right? Uh, you, you know, it, it's not the battles, it's the war that you ultimately want to win. And by inching forward, that's what they're doing, um, despite the fact that, you know, Russia's resistance has been fierce. I mean, I've seen photos of entire, entire towns completely leveled to the ground. There's not a building standing. It looks like, I mean, it looks like a desolate piece of land, right, that was created for a movie scene. That's yeah, how brutal it, the Russians have been. Yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. Russia has depended on many of their campaigns in the past on a scorched earth policy. And they are doing the same thing uh, to Ukraine, unfortunately. Ukraine is a beautiful culture, as we've talked about before. I've been there multiple times during my career as, uh, as a military guy and also afterwards, even after I retired, I was back in Kiev for a couple of things. It's a beautiful culture. It's a beautiful country. I've gone from east to west in that country. And Russia is certainly attempting to destroy not only the, the infrastructure, but also the culture. And the, uh, the Russian mm -hmm. president, Mr. Putin, is trying to beat down the Ukrainians. But the great thing about what I've learned about the Ukrainian people is they are extremely resilient and they, they want to have their own culture, their own sovereignty, their own territory. Uh, but I do want to go back to what you said at the very beginning. There are certainly uh, several people in the West, and especially in the United States, a few in our U.S. Congress, who, are, who don't see the, the, the value of defending Ukraine, of helping them defend themselves, of contributing to their off, uh, offensive operations now to regain territory. And to me, uh, those those who are citing the fact that we're spending too much money or we're giving them too much support while we're not doing things for our own country, you know, you can do both. And I think the United States has always been a beacon beacon of freedom and liberty and for other countries throughout the world. We are doing that right now with Mr. Zelensky and his population. And we've got to continue to do that, in my view, uh, in order to sustain a world order that doesn't allow other countries to invade uh, smaller countries, that doesn't allow people like Mr. Putin to commit war crimes with his generals, that doesn't allow the subjugation of an entire population that just want to live in peace and raise their children. So yeah, it, it just disturbs me significantly to see some of our politicians, mostly on the right, mostly the, the super ultra mega uh, folks, who are saying that we shouldn't give any more to Ukraine, we shouldn't assist them anymore. It's just a horrible situation to be in. But I think the the, the more pragmatic individuals within our Congress are going to persevere in this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I've been to Kiev twice. I don't know if uh, you know this, but my wife was born in the Ukraine in yeah. a, a town called Chernivtsi. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, you're not wrong. Every Ukrainian that I have met when I went to Kiev uh, to visit, uh, as well as my wife, uh, her family, and so on, uh, yeah, they're tough people. And I'm, I'm really shocked that Putin didn't realize this. You know, it, it's kind of like no different than the Chechnyans, where Putin thought that they were, right, gonna, the Russia thought they were going to roll right over them and so on. And the Chechnyans fought them off and they burned holes in the ground. They lived underground. They would come out like guerrilla warfare. I mean, they really became the fiercest fighters, um, you know, that were around. And I don't know why he was so misguided. I'm very curious. Your hmm. professional military experience, because Putin is not a stupid man, right? Donald is a stupid man, right? But Putin is not a stupid man. He's a studier. He is a reader. And I'm shocked that he thought that Ukraine would fall so easily that they, like, like the way Georgia, remember when they were rolling the tanks through the country of Georgia, Gruznia? Um, you know, that's a whole different world. Um, I really, I'm always curious as to who gave him such poor advice and what do you think ended up happening to them? Well, whenever you have an autocrat who's also a kleptocrat, like Mr. Putin mm -hmm. is. He's not only a dictator for his country, but he wants to gain more money and more power at, at every turn. You're going to have a bunch of people surrounding that individual. And boy, have we seen that in our own country, who will feed that beast, who will tell them, hey, you're great, you're doing wonderful things. Uh, you know, your vision is, is the most popular and it's what the people want until you try and start do those, doing those things. Uh, Mr. Putin doesn't understand the military. You know, he has a background as a spy. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't understand the military mindset. He does understand power and corruption. And because he has modeled that power and corruption, all of his generals and his cabinet members have done the same thing. I could, uh, you know, Mike, I could cite a couple of experiences I've had with Russian generals where I've I've talked to them, made friends with them, and then find out later on that they are taking bribes from some of their subordinates because they were allowed to do so. That's the culture of the Russian military today. That's not always been the culture, but it is the culture today, and it's been that way for at least 20 years, possibly longer, since Mr. Putin has been in charge. But when you have someone with a criminal mindset who thinks they can get away with things because they're not held accountable, like Mr. Putin, and others, as we've talked about, they, they keep pushing the envelope until they're told no more. Uh, you know, you mentioned your wife being from Chernev. I, I think we talked about this, and, and that's on the border of Moldova, uh, as I recall. And, and Mr. Putin wanted to go back into Moldova. He has a frozen conflict in a place called Transnistria, which is between Moldova and Ukraine. He has several other frozen conflicts, as you mentioned, in the two provinces in Georgia, in Nargano-Karabakh. These are places where he has attempted to invade. He wasn't allowed to get away completely with what he was trying to do. He was stopped. So they've now turned into what we call in the military a frozen conflict. It's just there waiting to be resolved. The great thing about the current uh, president of, of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, he is saying, we're not going to do that. We are going to push this guy back. 
We are going to regain our territory. We are going to secure our population. We are going to get our children back that have been kidnapped. Over 10,000 of them have been kidnapped yep. in, in Russia. And we're going to do our best to get Mr. Putin tried in the world court at The Hague. That's critical. All those things are critical. And there's a few other things on, on, the, on the 10 list that Mr. Zelensky has put together saying, this is what we will need to end this conflict. Uh, maintain, regain their territory, maintain security of the uh, Ukrainian people, uh, get their children and, and kidnap victims back, make peace along the border, and see Mr. Putin uh, in the world court, or, world court, excuse me, are the top four. But again, it goes right back to, I get the people around Putin are the sycophants, the acolytes that will respond to him, very similar to the way people responded to Donald, right? Whether it's the Ted Cruz's, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert's, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, all of them. I mean, whatever, uh, Jim Jordan, whatever it is uh, that they said to Mark Meadows, whatever it is that he wanted from them, you're right, boss, you're right, you're right. And I know that because I was around that for over a dozen years when I worked for him at the Trump Organization. That's the way he likes it. However... However, I can honestly tell you that on many occasions, I would say to Donald, that's not really the best route. Or, Donald, that's a terrible route. Now, you'll do what you want, but it's my obligation to give you the best advice that I can give you based upon the facts as I have deduced them. There is no doubt in my mind that these Russian generals don't want to lose their job or their head. Now, I get it. Russia, certainly bigger and stronger than Ukraine. But the notion that they were just going to roll in, that there wasn't even going to be a bullet fired, and they were going to take Ukraine back and annex it as to part of Russia, start to regain the former Soviet Union territories. That's not just stupid or wishful thinking. It's impractical. And then you have countries like the United States, thank God, who are providing Ukraine with drones. And these drones is my opinion. Again, you're the general, not me, right? My closest relationship to the military was like two days worth of Boy Scouts, and then they threw me out, right? Yeah. And I want to talk to you off, offline on that. I want, I want my money back. You know, I was like six years old. I want my fucking money back for that. But thank God for these drones, because these drones have actually changed the they've changed the way that this war is being waged. Now, you may have seen just yesterday um, a Ukrainian drone, and I don't recall if it's American or not. It's irrelevant. Destroyed a Russian bomber. Right. And they've also destroyed a series of ships you know, Russian, uh, Russian ships, and they've also used the drones. They've now sent them in to Moscow, right? Some of them have been knocked out of the sky, but I know that some of these drones have um, taken out runways in Moscow at the airport. Anything that you can do to disrupt Russians' lives, I think only advances... Zelensky's strength in the world as far as combating this war. Your opinion yeah. on that? 
Yeah, certainly. If we first talk a little bit about drones or what the military calls unmanned aerial or unmanned naval systems, UASs, UNSs. Um, you know, they are not new. Uh, back in the last time I was in combat in 2008, we had our own drones. Uh, certainly, you know about it. We've used them to to uh, basically attack targets, but there are much smaller ones as well inside of combat units. So what Ukraine has done, though, in a magnificent way is they've adopted their situation to, to emerging technologies. Since the last time I was serving in the military, they, they've had 10 years of increased technological advances mm -hmm. in the systems, and now they're using them ubiquitously across the battlefield, and they're linking them to other systems like artillery and like, uh, you know, even uh, direct fire systems and intelligence platforms. So what Ukraine has done is advanced the capability of unmanned systems on the battlefield, and it's magnificent, number one. And, and, and what you said a minute ago about the naval systems, you know, you're talking about the ability to put together, in effect, what's a motorboat that you've seen on Long Island and strap about 8,000 pounds of, of dynamite into it and have it guided toward, uh, you know, cost maybe a couple of thousand dollars and guide toward a, a ship that, you know, would cost several millions of dollars uh, is just you're showing the return on the investment that you get when you're using that kind of technology. The drones inside of Moscow, though, here and here's the interesting piece of this. Yes, you are absolutely right. It is taking the fight not only to Mr. Putin, but to the Russian people who didn't expect this. Uh, they never expected to be attacked inside their own country. That is causing a huge psychological effect. But what's most interesting, the, the drones that hit uh, inside of Moscow yesterday, that hit the bomber, uh, evidence seems to portray, and I won't go deeply into this because it has some intelligence factors, that those drones were launched from inside of Russia. So you're talking about not drones that have flown a couple of hundred kilometers from Ukraine inside to, to Moscow, which is several hundred kilometers away from the border, but literally underground movements within the Russian Federation itself that are attacking Mr. Putin, his forces, and his infrastructure. And I think that's become a lot more worrisome to a bunch of people who are megalomaniacs, think they're completely defective, and that, to get back to your original point, Michael, they are unaccountable for what they do. They are not held to accountability. They, are, they do not have a rule of law that says, as you said, uh, when you were giving advice to your client, you can't do this. It's against the law. It's not a good way to approach it. Russia doesn't have that mindset. Whatever Mr. Putin says he wants to do, he gets to do. And there's very few people uh, that will tell him no, that that's a dumb idea. Yeah, well, that's always a problem. General, David Frum recently wrote on Twitter that, and I quote, helping Trump into the U.S. presidency was Putin's supreme accomplishment as dictator. A Trump second term would have wrecked NATO from within. With no one to help it, Ukraine would have been easy pickings for Putin. Do me a big favor, please. Unpack for my listeners what you believe that Froome is saying here. Well, what he's saying is that, that uh, Mr. Mr. Putin certainly inserted himself into some of our politics, and we have evidence of that. Um, even though as much as some of the MAGAs say that that's not true, there is certainly a lot of evidence that, that our intelligence sector has seen. Secondly, uh, in the waning days of the former president's administration, 
there were several actions to try not only to pull all troops out of Afghanistan immediately, all troops out of Syria immediately, all troops out of Yemen, but the, the, the one, if we can hearken back a couple of years, there was a signed document from the president that was given to him by one of his advisors to pull all forces out of NATO. Think about that. Removing yep. forces in NATO. Now, I was the commander of U.S. Army Europe when we downsized the number of forces in Europe, and even just decreasing our size of the force caused tremors throughout the, the continent. Can you imagine, without leadership within, within Europe of the United States, what might have happened in Ukraine? The inability to get forces there to reinforce very quickly, to pull the alliance together, because truthfully, and I would stand in front of all the 32 members of the alliance and say this, and I think the vast majority would agree with me on this, the United States is the leader of NATO. Where we go, they often follow. Uh, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the not so good. But what I'll tell you is, you know, in my view, one of the things, well, let me tell you this story, Michael. The night before the attack uh, by Russian forces into Ukraine, uh, I was called up to CNN to prepare to talk about the war. As a military guy, what I did in my hotel room the night before is I wrote down what I thought the five strategic objectives of Mr. Putin were. Because if you don't know the strategic objectives of your civilian leaders, you can't determine what the military objectives are of your forces. And I knew I would have to be talking about the military objectives. Two of the, the objectives uh, that Mr. Putin had, I think, is in his evasion was not only to subjugate Ukraine and, and replace the, the civilian leadership within that country, but two of the other ones was to continue to defeat NATO by this attack to show how they divided they were and to show how divided the United States still was because he didn't feel that the Biden administration and the Congress would pull together and support Ukraine in their attack against NATO or attack against, uh, by Russia. So what I think certainly uh, David Frum was saying is th there was a danger period. Uh, and, you know, we, we keep forgetting the, the, the dark days of a few years ago, every engagement that Mr. Trump had with Russian leadership uh, tended to agree with what the Russians wanted to do. Helsinki, uh, the disaster this meeting with Lavrov, the pulling forces out of NATO, the badgering of NATO leadership, uh, it, it all seemed to indicate that he wanted to, to have a different approach and let Europe do whatever Europe wanted to do. And in that case, it was Mr. Putin invading several countries. You know, that's why, General, that I decided I wanted to mix it up and asked you to please come back to mea culpa. Because first of all, I don't see you often enough on television, whether it's CNN or whoever else that you, you know, that you um, consult for. All I see when you turn on the television, I don't give a shit, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, you know, ABC, NBC. It makes no difference. CBS. All you see is Trump. Trump, 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 Trump. Which is nothing but oxygen to this bloviated Mandarin Mussolini. If you took away the oxygen, it would die. It would just go away. But not when you're doing what you're doing. The second that the guy gets into a truck 
and they start driving out. The f sirens going, you have police escorts, they're shutting down highways. Like if the guy is a superstar, if he's a rock star, he's a president or a dignitary coming in from another country, right? This guy's getting a police escort, they're shutting down the highways, whether it was in New York, in Palm Beach, Florida, whether it was in DC, they're shutting down the roadways from National Airport, from Reagan National Airport to the courthouse. For what? For a guy who's being indicted? He is an indicted defendant, plain and simple, going in order to make a, a statement to the judge on innocent or guilt. End of story. But we're treating him like he's some sort of a celebrity, superstar, right? Um, you know, it's, it, to me, I don't understand what we're doing. First of all, why, why is anybody giving him escorts in the first place? Let him fucking sit in traffic like everybody else. Why is he being treated differently? I don't understand. And that's why I'm so thankful that you joined me today. Because things like what David Froome is saying here, things that you're sharing with us about Ukraine and Russia and the importance of this war to the future of democracy. Look, we have our own internal fights going on where I do believe that democracy is hanging by a shoestring because of Donald J. Trump. But it's not just Donald J. Trump that could destroy democracy. It's also shit like Putin, right? Yeah. It's also problems, you know, that Russia is creating, destabilizing America. How about when you have members of Congress, General, Members of our own Congress, elected officials in this country who side with Putin. What the hell is that about? Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me, Michael. And, and what, it, what I think it gets back to is there's a certain segment of our population that are strong supporters of the former president. And they want to see him uh, get past all this, get back into office, be voted on, you know, lead the party, do whatever. And they don't understand how what you just said is a critical piece of maintaining our democracy, our support for the constitutional ideas that we all pledge to support and defend, and the fact that what makes us different, what makes the United States different from all other countries is we have national ideas that say, we believe in number one, the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And number two, we believe in the respect for all people, no matter who they are. So when you have a group of individuals who saying, well, no, we really don't believe in the rule of law if it applies to our favorite guy. And we don't really respect to all, we don't respect all people if they happen to be uh, a different color or a different gender or, or whatever, then you're seeing the violation of what we are part of as a nation. So you have that part uh, of the society that, that is enamored by this individual who is doing everything contrary to what we say we believe in and our, our national values. And then you have another part of our population who I think is interested in, in the every movement of Trump because they feel it's fair for him to be held accountable. If we believe in the rule of law, this individual seems to have certainly violated several statutes uh, or he wouldn't be indicted on over 90 counts uh, of, of criminal activity. Then, you know, my view is, I, you know, I'm interested in what happens on a daily basis with, with Mr. Trump because 
I believe he should be held accountable. And I think a great deal of our country believes that too. But while we're watching that, to your point, we're, we're ignoring many of the other things that are going on that are so critically important that, and that should inform us as a population and as a citizenry. Yes, like reversing the Supreme Court's stupid Dobbs decision, you know, affecting a woman's rights. I mean, this is so ridiculous. We're worrying about Trump getting into a car, whether he gets to the courthouse safely or not. Personally, I don't give a shit. I truly <laughs> don't, right? As far as I'm concerned, let his supporters, you know, drive him there. I don't give a shit. I care about women's about women's choice. I care about, you know, um, the homeless situation. I care about the the climate change. Oh, yeah. We don't have climate change. Why don't you tell that to California? Right. right. I mean, this is this is insane. I did want to ask you something, though, because there's can so I, can many. I, can I comment on what uh, you just said, though? I think because gen, you were... gen, general general, you outrank me. You could say whatever you like. No, you can tell I, me I to think... sit down. You can tell me no, to sit no, in the no, corner. No, you're doing great. You're doing great, Michael. You're fired up today. I can tell. Uh, the, the part you just mentioned, though, about sucking the oxygen out of our nation is what Mr. Trump is doing. I, I, and I think, you know, the very nature of him wanting to go to turn himself in on Wednesday night when the GOP debate was going on. And because they didn't allow him to do that, he said, OK, I'll go Thursday morning. So anything that might be said of importance in the GOP debate uh, tomorrow He's going to he's going to, you know, appear in an Atlanta court or an Atlanta jailhouse to turn himself in. And that is going to suck all the oxygen out of any of the potential GOP candidates uh, that sat on the stage on Wednesday night. But he, he you've been with him. You know that that's what he does. He gets the messaging. He gets the press to do what he wants them to do. And that's part of the unfortunate piece of this, that we allow him to do that. I still don't think he's going to come in on Thursday. I don't know why my birthday is on Friday, and that would be the best birthday gift anybody could give to me, you know, watching him get his fucking mugshot taken. But I did want to ask you something because I'm very, um, I'm enamored with the whole concept of the drones. I love the fact that, you know, you can actually engage in war without putting, um, you know, our, you know, men and women of the military in harm's way, right, you know, for example, you know, you got to fly an airplane, right? right. So there, there are so many different types of drones that are out there. I know that there's one that's called um, the Sea Baby drone. There's another one which is called the Beaver. There's the um, Ukrainian one called uh, Eros Vidka, uh, the R18 that they have. Uh, they, you know, the um, Kazmachta uh, that they have. And the, all these drones look, you know, look very, very different. You know, some look like uh, the Orland 10. You know, some look like the drones that you see people flying in the park. Others look like little mini airplanes uh, and so on. What's the most effective one? And why can we not legitimately, if I was president of the United States, and I'm not running for the presidency, uh, I may run for Congress. I, I, I may do it. Um, but why can't we figure out how to mass produce these drones? It's technology. If we could produce 1,000 cars a day, can we not produce 1,000 drones a day? I mean, you know, there has to be a way to speed up the production of these things and then just 
get him over to Ukraine, go through Poland, go through some, go through Moldova, go through somewhere, but get them to the Ukrainian front line. They cannot be nearly as expensive as, you know, one missile. I mean, they seem or they look cheap enough. Send a whole bunch of them in at the same time. And if Russia manages to knock one, two, three down, no problem. 10, 12 will get through and really shake Moscow up. And I don't want to see anybody. I, I promise this to you. I have a lot of friends from Moscow. You know, I've never been, but I have a lot of friends from Moscow years ago. I don't want to see anybody, certainly no one innocent, get hurt. But look at what they've done to Ukraine. Look at the mothers, the grandmothers, the children, the elderly. They're bombing hospitals, for God's sakes. And until you turn around and you show them the devastation of war by bringing it into their own backyard, my fear is that there's no incentive for Putin to stop. Yeah, well, you know, from a military perspective, what I'll say, your first question was, what's the most effective drone? And I'll teach you a military acronym. It's called DOTS. Uh, DOT stands for it depends on the situation. Uh, you know, when, when I was when I was in Iraq, for, for me, gonna, nothing for nothing, General, for me, it's a candy that I used to get, you know, at the five and dime store. Yeah, well, it's now <laughs> dipping dots, the ice cream from Hershey's, right? Uh, even, uh, even better, even better. Um, when you're talking about drone warfare, Michael, you know, I, I think there's a lot of American citizens who say, why don't we give them everything? I mean, the argument for the F-16 or the ATACMs or massive supplies of drones. But drones, truthfully, uh, the majority of the drones, I think it would surprise most Americans to know, are, are off-the-shelf kind of quadcopters that you and I could buy our kids or our grandkids to play in the backyard with. Uh, and they are attaching small bombs to that, flying them over you know, tanks or trench lines or whatever. And Ukraine has been very effective in that. Uh, we have sent them thousands of drones that are militarily, military produced drones, and they are highly effective. Uh, I could go through the list of them. None of them were on the list you just gave, but things like the switchblade, uh, which are just devastating. And we have literally sent them thousands of drones. I used a drone, and you use drones for different things. Some of them you use for intelligence collection. Some of them you, you use for jamming. Some of mm -hmm. them you use for dropping small bombs or bigger bombs or targeting with big missile systems if you have those types of drones. Um, and they, they contribute to the battlefield. But here's the important thing, Mike. They, they do not gain ground. Uh, and the key aspect of Ukraine's fight right now is to regain their territory. So if you don't have anything literally on the ground with someone with boots on saying, I now own this piece of property, you don't get anywhere. Now, certainly drones will contribute to that, but they're not the war winners that a lot of people think they are. They, they've received a lot of publicity uh, in the open press because a lot of people just don't understand how different factions of the military come together in a synchronized matter to take manner to take ground. That's what Ukraine is interested in doing right now. That's what their offensive is doing. So we can say we could continue to send drones into Russia. But here's the important point that isn't being publicized as much. Uh, you know, the drones that are being knocked down coming from Russia into Ukraine are being knocked down by air defense systems and electronic warfare systems. 
In other words, they will shoot signals at the drone's guidance capability and knock them out of the sky. Ukraine has reported they've been very successful since they've been given a lot of Western air defenses and electronic means. Russia, on the other hand, has a shitload, and I'm using that as a military expression, of air defense equipment and electronic warfare equipment. So everyone that says, just give them more F-16s or give them more attack of missiles mm -hmm. or give them more drones, you know, unfortunately, our Russian friends have a lot of artillery, a lot of air defense, and a lot of electronic warfare that they can knock these things out of the sky. And it's tough to spend billions of dollars on these kind of things just to see them be ineffective. Right. I, I understand. To me, I sort of saw it as like the way that the Luftwaffe attacked London, right? It was just the indiscriminate bombing. Because what it does, war, as you know, of course, much, much better than I, uh, there's a big part of war that's psychological. And it's course, the psychological yeah. aspect. So I don't believe that Putin will stop until the people of Russia make him stop. Yeah, when, he's, when he's fearful. And so when you start putting that fear into the people in Moscow, well, now it's a real problem for him. And that's yeah, the well, only reason why I brought up yeah, the whole issue. Two, two things on that, because those are both important points. Uh, the the, the V-bombs, uh, the buzz bombs uh, sent to London by the Nazis during World War II, I'd ask the question, what kind of effect did they have? They, they actually steeled the will of the British people to help them fight back. Uh, the, the other thing, too, though, is, is you know, you're talking about, um, you know, some of these things. Well, I just keep going back to the point that you've got, and this is from an Army perspective, you've got to stand on the ground and say, I've retaken it. Oh, I know what the other thing I was going to say. You mentioned about the people uh, uh, getting rid of Putin. I believe that's going to happen, and I believe that's going to happen sooner rather than later. I actually thought a couple of weeks ago when Prigozhin conducted mm -hmm. his, uh, you know, his attack or his close to attack on, on Moscow, that that was the beginning of the end. And I, I can't for the life of me understand why he pulled off of that. Money. There's, there's, no, there's Money. no doubt. There's yep. no doubt. Uh, you know, Putin reached out to uh, Prigozhin and said to him, you know, I'm sending you a billion dollars. Fuck off. Right. Yep. You know, don't come back into Moscow. Go take your billion. I, I tell you what, here's two billion. It doesn't matter. Right. They, they're making money now hand over fist when it comes right. to the oil and so on. And Putin doesn't care. So he probably gave him two billion dollars and told him to piss off. And the guy did. But generally, and I want to ask you. And Prigozhin then said, I'm going to live to fight another day, which he will. Uh huh. A hundred percent. So. General, you tweeted recently that, and I quote, it's important to remind all Floridians that the guy who was admired by war criminal Putin is the same guy all of Florida's GOP congressmen, including a guy named Michael Waltz, went to Florida to support. What does it say to you? That there's this, still this blind acceptance of Trump, a blind acceptance of his crimes and his support and love for Putin. What does that uh, say? My, it, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But Michael Waltz happens to be my congressman, and that's why I tweeted that. Because he went, he's, he has a headline on his Twitter feed that he's the only U.S. Colonel Green Beret in Congress. And I'm thinking to myself, great, dude. You're basically supporting a guy that violated our Constitution and is under four federal indictments. So tell me again why you and Matt Gates and all the other knuckleheads supported Donald Trump in Iowa. 
interestingly enough, <laughs> Michael, Waltz came back at me on that. And he gave some, I, I got to be careful because I'm talking about a politician, but he gave an interesting answer to me that shows he doesn't get it. He, he raised his hand as a congressman, just like he did as an officer in the United States Army to protect and defend the Constitution. And yet he's supporting a guy with everything he's got. Uh, or I know the answer he gave me was, you know, the United States killed more Russians under Donald Trump than they have under uh, President Biden. Well, what he was talking about was the raid that the the Prigozhin's group did in Syria, where they did a dumb thing against the United States special operations community. And within about an hour, 200 Prigozhin's troops were killed when they weren't expecting that. That's not Donald Trump doing that. That's U.S. Army special operations. So I don't know what he's talking about. And I can't answer the question on why anyone would be, why 47% of the GOP right now is supporting Mr. Trump in Iowa. I don't get that. I don't understand how anybody in the military or anybody w wears a uniform. You know, I just came back. I was in France. And when every time I come back to the country, I come states, uh, back stateside, I get pulled by immigration. It makes a my name is in the computer. You know, um, they need to call, you know, um, whether it's uh, probation, they need to call the Department of Justice to ensure that I was authorized, right, that I got authorization to leave the country. I have to tell you, the agents who work at this is this was at um, Newark Airport where I came in were so great to me. The one guy who escorted me to the back room, he was like, "Oh, uh, when he realized it was me, you know." And he goes, "I just want to tell you." He goes, "Thank you for everything that you're doing." I said, "No, no, no. Thank you for everything that you're doing." You know, they're helping to keep America safe. No different than the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines, uh, I guess now Space Force, right, as well. And I thanked him for it. And then he brought me to another gentleman. And the guy turned around and he said to me, in the future, what you should have is you should have a letter showing the support. Because as you know, when you're inside that area, you don't get a signal. And they block right. it for obvious reasons. Um, right. And so he said to me, he goes, were you authorized? And I said, I was. Uh, I'm not leaving the country, right? I mean, you know, this shit's over for me in like another 10, 11 months. So he said, all right, just next time that you leave the country, just have the letter to make it easier. I said, would you like the name of the PO officer? And he said, no, no, no. I, he goes, I believe you. And he goes, and you keep fighting. And I said, and again, to you, thank you for your service. That's how, that's how I believe that all of these people should be treated. It's not the way Donald treats them. It's not the no. way he treats our men and women in blue. It's not the way that he treats, you know, our armed forces. He certainly had a nice little comment for the generals, which you may remember, that he knows more about war than the generals. Really? And your, and your extensive experience, it's certainly not from reading, right? And it's certainly not from your coloring books. So why don't you tell me where you acquired this incredible knowledge of war by osmosis? Because I would like to have that same ability to download the information that somehow he found. I don't get it. Well, it's interesting you, you use that example of he knows more than the generals, because I don't know if I ever told you this, but the first time he used that statement was directed at me on Anderson Cooper's show. 
because the night before I, he had, this was during the time where he said, we should go into Iraq and steal all their oil. And if I were the president, I'd talk to people at BP and Exxon and they'd be in there in a heartbeat and we'd take the oil and it'd pay us back. Well, Cooper, Anderson Cooper, uh, his producer called me and he said, what do you think about that? And I said, it's a war crime. It's, and we had people from BP and Shell inside of Iraq and they said they couldn't uh, regain the, the prosperity of the, the different oil companies at the Beji oil refinery and in and the northern regions. And so the next night, Cooper was interviewing uh, Mr. Trump at Trump Towers. And he said, well, we've got a general, General Hurtling, uh, that says you can't do that. It's a war crime. And that's when Trump, for the first time ever, said, well, then I know more than General Hurtling. You can look that up on YouTube. So I take great honor. That's going to be on my tombstone, I think, Michael, that Trump knew more, more than me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. As long as you're not buried at Bedminster next to Ivana. So, yeah. General, I, let me ask you this then. If Trump does somehow manage to make it back to the White House, what does that mean for the country on how we will deal with Putin and Russia going forward? Well, first of all, uh, I think if, if he does get elected, which I don't think he will, he's going to pardon himself. Uh, so the rule of law, which is one of our foundations of democracy, will be out the window uh, because he will not have been held accountable for the crimes that he committed. But secondly, we've already seen his relationship with Putin, and, and he even said it the other day. You know, he said that Putin saw him as the apple of his eye. I don't get that statement at all. Yeah, neither uh, do I. So, That's just fucking so, weird. So you're saying a guy who's a, an acknowledged war criminal who's about to be put before the Hague thinks you're the apple of his eye. What does that say about you? Uh, you know, if, if, if you're taking a great solace in that, it, it doesn't say much about your conscience, your conscience, but uh, I, I don't know. I, what will happen, I think we'll just get unbelievably bad, uh, a bad situation in terms of our international security arrangements and uh, for that matter, the, the confidence of our partners and allies around the world. Yeah, I, look, all Donald wants out of the presidency is autocracy, monarchy, dictatorship. That's what he wants. He's, he wants what Putin has for Russia. He wants to have it for America. But the one well, thing I, he does know is that militarily, we are the strongest that's out there. And I think we have the most advanced technology that's out there, maybe alongside Israel. Um, I mean, we just have incredible technology that people can't even, you can't even dream it because it's not something that's discussed. He knows that as the president or as the dictator, the Fuhrer, the monarch, whatever he wants to call himself, he knows that he has access and control over all of that. And so he won't stop. I'm telling you, if he takes back the White House, all he's going to look to do, something he already told us, rewrite the Constitution to figure out how he remains in power for the rest of his life and then has the right within which to transfer that power to a person of his choice. Well, and that is exactly what Mr. Putin has done. He wrote the Russian constitution, rewrote the Russian constitution, right. became the president, then the, the prime, prime minister. minister. Then, yeah, yeah yep. it, it's, it's, it's the autocrat's playbook. Um, here's the interesting thing about Putin, though, you know, getting back to what the question you asked. Um, there are 49 countries in Europe 
Uh, I know each one of them. I've been I've been to about 39 of them when I was in on active duty uh, multiple times. And what is interesting is every one of those 49 countries, with the exception of maybe one or two, hate Putin, hate Putin's guts. They don't like Russia either, because most of them have been under the thumb of Russia at some time in their existence. So if if we have if we ever have a president that kowtows to Putin and Russia, they're going to lose the alliances and partnerships of those 49 others. And that's a significant amount of the global economy. When you consider Russia has less than one fifth of California's GDP, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be great to, to do something with Russia when you're going to lose uh, the Frances, the Germanys, the Belgians, uh, you know, everybody else in Europe. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, but General, you recently tweeted that, and I quote, weaponizing seems to be the replacement for woke. And neither of those words mean what Republicans want them to mean. What do you think the GOP wants them to mean? And how have they gotten it so wrong? That's the part that baffles me. How do you get it wrong? It's not, it's not that difficult. Well, the, the definition of woke... Uh, is unknown. Uh, uh, Governor DeSantis's lawyer attempted to describe what it was. And from our understanding, when we saw the description, it was a pretty good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. But I think most of the GOP are using it as, as a curse word to say anyone who is woke believes in principles that, that we don't believe in. And you can run down the list of whatever those principles happen to be, like we were saying before, the respect for other people, the ability for, for individuals to live out freedom and liberty the way they want to. Uh, so anyone who believes in any of those things that doesn't concur with some people's definitions are considered woke. Weaponization it only occurs when it's directed at you. Uh, weaponization of the Justice Department is only bad when it's directed at you. When it's directed at other people without any proof or evidence, then it's okay. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. So, so both of these words uh, have become part of the lexicon uh, in many elements of the various politicians that we see today. And none of them can define what it really means. Well, there uh, so is actually definitions, by the way. You know, Miri, uh, the Webster's Dictionary has it. But it, look, to be fair, woke, right, is an adjective, right? I mean, people can look this up. It's derived from uh, African-American vernacular English and basically means nothing more than alerting people to racial prejudice and discrimination. How could alerting people to prejudice and discrimination ever be wrong? I mean, okay, they want to say, you know, uh, I don't like, uh, you know, this whole non-binary thing. I don't understand it. You know, he, she, him, or that there's now um, women uh, who are actually men who are competing in sports and all this. I, I get it. There's always going to be some aspect of everything that you could point your finger to and say, you know what? Maybe it's going too far. It's almost right. like, why do you need a car that can go 200 miles an hour? Right? Seriously, why do you need it? and spend seven to ten million dollars on it? Why do you need a 200 mile an hour car when the fastest that you can go in New York, right, and on any highway is 65? Mm -hmm. Right? So you know you can always point your finger to that far extreme. 
But all it is is just opening your eyes and alerting you to the feelings of your neighbor, to the feelings of the guy that you're standing in front of or behind at the bank or in the supermarket, right? About racial prejudice and discrimination. That's, to me, the easiest definition of woke to explain and why the GOP wants to bastardize it into making it into something that it's not. I don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't get a lot of things that are happening uh, on on specifically that side of the aisle, Michael. It just they don't make sense to me. They're not pragmatic. They're nonsensical. They don't contribute to the to the to the future growth of our society and our nation, our expansion of things. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, we do need two parties. I, I'm a firm believer in a two party system, but I believe both sides, both parties need to cooperate and 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 understand that their goal should be to form a more perfect union. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. we've got so much tension and so much division that that it's incredible. One of the things I wanted to share with you, Mike, I was I was up in your part of the woods last weekend. I was at West Point uh, doing some things with some cadets. And I found out that our alumni association, our association of graduates is what it's called, was formed in 1869. And do you know why it was formed and who it was formed by? It was formed in New York City by graduates from both sides of the Civil War, the Union and the Confederates. And after the war was over, they said, hey, we're the ones that fought the war. We're the ones that know how it destroyed our society. So let's get together and try and reunite ourselves. So the graduates of West Point who fought on both sides, uh, some were traitors, some defended the Union, came together afterwards and said, we've got to find a better way to move forward. And they did that at least for a little while. That's the kind of thing we need to look at today. To how do we move forward with a lot of good ideas coming from all parts of our society? Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. I'm with you. It's one of the reasons, honestly, that I am literally on the hinge of just jumping into a congressional race because there's just nobody that I see out there. I shouldn't say nobody. There are. There, there are. But there aren't enough. And I'm just so tired of watching Americans on both sides, Republicans, Democrats, independents. I'm so tired of watching the rest of the country just sort of flounder, right, like a fish out of water while you know they're off doing their, their stupid things. But I want to ask you this because you and I are in total alignment on this because you recently took Bill Barr to task for having a late in the game Saul on the road to Damascus, you know, conversion in his distance from Trump by asking why it took him and others like him four years to reach this point. Do you think that Barr and others who did Trump's bidding, no matter how much that they've turned on the former president as of today, can lose that shit stain um, of their actions? Uh, well, I, I'm not the right one to ask on that, uh, Michael. I, I, I kind of believe if anyone uh, worked for that individual during their time in the White House, during his time in the White House, it was because they wanted to contribute to government. I firmly believe that. Uh, in my view, I would have never, if, if he had asked me to work for him, I would have said no. And of course he didn't. Uh, but the fact that suddenly uh, there's so many that now have religion and are that are turning against him, I think, first of all, that's a good thing. 
because they, they've now come to an understanding of what this individual did to our country. Uh, and, and I shouldn't be talking this way because I'm a, I'm a military guy. I, I'm supposed to be apolitical. But it, it, I turned off the apolitical when I found an individual who was trying to destroy our Constitution. You know, I can deal with ideas and ideology and people working to try and make a betterment of our country in a different way. That's good. That's how you are apolitical. But when you see someone destroying our Constitution, you need to call them out. And I think for a lot of the individuals that are now standing up and calling them out, it's a little bit too late. Uh, they should have voted during impeachment hearings. They should have, you know, not in Mr. Barr's case, should not have subject, uh, subjugated the, the Mueller investigation and kind of tried to whitewash a lot of different things. I don't know why they did those things. I can't judge them. But truthfully, I don't trust any of them. Yeah. And you have every right not to. Look, no one is more critical of Bill Barr really than I. And yeah, this, this, salt, <laughs> this salt on the road to Damascus or coming to Jesus moment, you know, for Bill Barr, I don't give a shit about him. I don't believe a thing that comes out of that walrus's fucking mouth. I really don't. He, he, before I would accept him back into polite society, he needs to come clean. And not sit there and be the judge of Donald. You know, I told Donald that he lost the election. Or I told Donald what you're doing is unconstitutional. Fuck you. Seriously? How about for the two and a half years that you were there as the attorney general? How about an unconstitutional remand of a United States citizen, me, back to Otisville because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional rights? That's a Vladimir Putin move. That's a Kim Jong-un. That's a Mohammed bin Salman move. That's not an American move. That's an authoritarian dictator, supreme leader move where you jail somebody because they won't waive their First Amendment constitutional right. In Khashoggi's case, they killed him, right? Um, you know, it's the, same, it's the same move by another authoritarian wannabe. Bill Barr never came clean. He's never said a single thing about his involvement. And until you own your own error and your own mistakes and your own actions, you should never be permitted to ask for forgiveness from the American people. Yeah, well, you know, you, you're talking about you being remanded. There were so many others that were excused from, from extreme crimes, to include war crimes, uh, because they pledged fealty to an individual. That's not the rule of law either. I mean, the, the, the pardon power of the president, as is, is talked about in the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, is something that you do when you think an individual should be relieved of, of guilt. Uh, it's not to, to give gifts away to people who think they earned it, like the Roger Stones and the... And the, the Paul various... Manafort's in the shore. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's on both sides. It's not only doing things like he did to you, but it's also freeing individuals who never suffered uh, the, the discipline or the, the, the punishment that the rule of law requires to include murderers. It just so it doesn't, doesn't, sure. it doesn't uh, connect with me. So, General, question for you then. Where are all the Democrats why are the Democrats then not jumping on this? Why do they not have Bill Barr before a congressional committee investigating the, I'm, I am the first, 
right? I should go down in the Guinness Book of World Records right now. I am the first political prisoner held by my own country. So what did I do? I brought a lawsuit against the United States government, Trump, Bill Barr, DOJ, etc. Well, as a result of the Dobbs decision, the same decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, it also overturns Bivens. And Bivens is the only way that you could hold government accountable financially for a violation of your constitutional rights. It's on appeal. We'll see what happens. But where are the Congress members? Where are the Democrats? This is the problem. There's nobody that's stepping up and taking control. Look, and I thanked him. I contacted them. Dan Goldman got up and made a statement. Jamie Raskin, Congressman Steve Cohen, they got, they got up. Ted Lieu even tried. Hakeem Jeffries tried. Senator Dick Durbin also tried. They all asked for investigations to the IG. Nothing came out of it. Our system, our DOJ, is so fucking flawed. Thanks to somebody like Bill Barr, I can't give him a pass until he comes clean. Gives, as far as I'm concerned, gives the documents that I know he still has against Trump whereby he was directed to do what they did, which is to have me go to 500 Pearl Street, where they had already drafted documents to have me remanded back to Otisville. It's just absolutely wrong. Where are our members of Congress? I don't know, but I can tell you I'm never going to let that fight go. But, you know, look, last thing, General, because the hour goes by so quickly, I could talk for you for five hours. I have one last question for you here. Because I love this tweet that you, um, that you had, um, you know, that read, and I'm going to quote, I'm no politician, but I've read the indictment. Any elected official who can't tell the difference between a witch hunt and the required application of the rule of law shouldn't be serving, nor should citizens place, them, um, place faith in them. At what point do you see the GOP walking away from Trump, if ever? And same with his base of supporters. Because at this point in time, they should have said, enough is enough. No more. Right? Not one indictment, not two, not three, four. And that's not even including the superseding indictment, which would really yeah. make it five. And soon to be six with the January 6th. But the more that he's indicted, the more popular the polls seem to show that he's getting. What do you think's going on here? I don't think that's an accurate description of what's happening. We're seeing the there is certainly a amount of the base of Republicans that are that are becoming more adamant about supporting him. But all indications are he's losing Democrat or excuse me, he's losing independence yes. by the bushel basket. Um, but it, there's also indicators that some some of his supporters. I mean, I'll I'll cite the example of Mo Brooks. Uh, there was no one that was more uh, adamant about supporting Trump than, than Congressman Brooks. And I think over the last couple of days, he's, there's been some cracks in his armor a little bit about not supporting Trump. I, I don't know what it's going to take, Michael. I think it, it will take an inflection point where there's suddenly a shift uh, of individuals. And maybe it's when, it's, it's when a hearing is publicized or shown on TV or when someone sees him saying things that are patently not true in person and a lawyer just eating his lunch, I think it's going to take something like that. Uh, you know, I would love to see some of these these hearings 
uh, be publicized or you know be shown on TV because he's going to try the BS that he does at his rallies in court. And he's and you know this as a lawyer, he's going to get destroyed. You know they're not going to take that. The judge is going to shut him down and maybe even hold him in contempt, which would be interesting. Uh, yeah. But I think we're gradually going to see over the next couple of months as as some of these things came to come to fruition that he's going to continue to lose support. I honestly believe that. And if, you know, but again, I'm the eternal optimist about our country and what our citizens should do. And sometimes I'm disappointed in some parts of our citizenry. Well, I will tell you, I'm going to continue to do my fight, as I'm sure you are going to continue your fight in order to ensure that democracy, you know, survives uh, for your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, right. and the generations to come. General, thank you for your service to this country. Thank you for joining me on Maya Culpa. Thank you for your friendship. Uh, I truly appreciate you. It's always great talking to you, Michael. I get a dose of New York, which my wife is from, and so I, hearing your accent just brings me back to uh, when I first visited her. So it's good to be with you. Good, and I can't wait to see you when you're back here in New York. Okay, all right, take care, thank buddy. You. Thank you, pal. Yeah. And now for today's mea culpa. Watching the first of the defendants surrender themselves was a truly remarkable moment in what has been a long and tortured road to justice and accountability. But it is proof positive of my claim that while the wheels of justice turn slowly, and when I mean slowly, I mean real fucking slow, but they nevertheless continue to turn. The accelerating developments at the jail and in the Fulton County Courthouse are also providing a reality check, not just about the consequences that may await those who allegedly helped Trump's bid to stay in power, but also about the vast scale of the case, parts of which are being brought under complex racketeering laws often used against organized crime rings. So we, we today are witnessing what justice looks like and Trump and his cohorts are being ground to dust in a forefront war in both domestic and federal court. I know this is just the beginning of what everyone must understand is going to be a long fight. But you know what, let's take a pause for a moment and let's celebrate this day. We need to celebrate it because nothing like this has ever happened in America and God willing, never will again. So for now, some sense of justice has been served and we should all be relishing in it. The rest, I promise you, I promise this to you, my friends, the rest will come later. And as always, thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my Maya Culpa.